that night the city burnt, and the mother church of the city burnt with her. And yet the tower and the spire still stand, soaring to the sky, and I feel that's an emblem of the eternal majesty and love of God. Greetings. You are tuned into the Miserable Offenders podcast. Pull up a chair and join the conversation as we seek answers to life's big questions, drawing wisdom from the well of traditional Anglican theology. This is a production of the North American Anglican. Well, greetings and welcome to the Miserable Offenders. Feel free to pull up a chair and join our discussion. I'm Jesse Nigro, editor of the North American Anglican, and today I'm joined by Father Isaac Rayberg. Greetings, Father. Hello, hello. I'm Father Isaac Rayberg, the rector of All Saints Anglican Church in San Antonio, Texas, and the canon for liturgy in the Anglican Diocese of the West. Good to have you here, Father. Um, Now, if our listeners have been following along faithfully then they'll know that we finished off our uh, essay reading that we've been reading together, yourself, me, and Andrew, called The Spirit of Anglicanism. And we're ready to sink our teeth into something new. And I think this, uh, this new piece will be a good one. What do you think? Oh, I'm definitely looking forward to it. Um... This is, this is an essay I also have not read, but I'm very familiar with the author, and he's one of my favorites. Yes, and the author, for you listener, is uh, the Reverend, the late Peter Toon, um, who, if you've been a fan of the traditional Book of Common Prayer, or Orthodox Anglicanism, or really uh, just conservative or Orthodox theology in general... You may know the name, and you may have a special place in your heart and or library dedicated to this man. Um, For those who don't or aren't familiar with uh, Peter Toon, let's uh, pull up his bio here, and uh, we'll just read a little bit about who he is and uh, to kind of get the listener situated and to understand his importance. Um, Let's see. After an earlier career as a college lecturer in religious studies, Toon was ordained deacon in 1973 and priest in 1974 in the Diocese of Liverpool in the Church of England. He served a short title curacy in, and I can't pronounce that, just over a year (laughs) compared with the (laughs) usual requirement of three years, before taking a post in Oxford as librarian of Latimer House, the headquarters and library of a conservative evangelical pressure group, subsequently the Latimer Trust, without property, but maintaining its library at Oak Hill Theological College, London, during which time he also served as curate at St. Ebbs, a central Oxford evangelical parish church, In 1976, he became a tutor at Oak Hill Theological College in London, training ordinance, and then from 1982, director of post-ordination, training in the Diocese of Edmondsbury and Ipswich in East Anglia. He returned briefly to parish ministry uh, before moving to the United States of America in 1991. In the last decade of his working life, he served as president and CEO of the Prayer Book Society of the USA, and his life and work were centered in America, although he did return briefly to England and was, for four years, the priest in charge of the villages of Biddulph Moor and Brown Edge in Staffordshire. Uh, Toon wrote over 25 books together with numerous booklets, essays, and articles He also engaged in internet authorship and discussion, contributing to these topics online until his death. Yeah, do do we need to get into the next, the kind of style and beliefs, do you think? You know, we we could, um, but maybe that'll just come out here. Yeah, I kind of think it it probably would. 
Yeah, Toon's uh, connection to the Prayer Book Society USA is really where many of us know him. Um, the Prayer Book Society has put out just an absolute ton of material um, and a lot of his, his, his works themselves. Um, they've put a lot of that online, which is very helpful. Um, those of you that may have been involved in the Anglican mission in America back in the early days may be familiar with his little blue adaptation of the liturgy, that little blue book. Um, I remember, gosh, about 10 years ago in my early days as a postulant, seeing that that was just floating around everywhere. And it was published by the Prayer Book Society USA in mm -hmm. conjunction with EMEA. But that was uh, Toon's adaptation of the traditional liturgy into modern language to serve as a bridge um, for modern English folks back to the traditional liturgy. So that, that's, right. a, that's a really good little book. And that's a, a great example of sort of one of the many things that uh, Peter Toon was passionate about, which was, um, first of all, the Anglican formularies, but speaking for the Prayer Book Society, um, first and foremost, the classical Book of Common Prayer and how we can get Anglicanism and various Anglican worshipers um, reunited with our sort of source of common prayer. And so that booklet was, or that book was um, one example of sort of his passion and his life's work and legacy um, made manifest in that way. Uh, the book that we're about to read, and I'd like to direct our listeners to a wonderful resource online called the New Scriptorium. That's uh, newscriptoriumoneword.com. And uh, there you can find the Tune Collection. And this book is called Knowing God Through the Liturgy by Peter Toon. And you're going to see in this um, short book essay that we're going to go through um, the same emphasis and the same desire to draw these Anglican communities back into a position where we're actually um, engaged in common prayer, quote unquote, full stop. So yeah, yeah definitely check out that website and uh, follow along as we read and um, you'll find plenty of other wonderful resources there. Yeah, and as an introduction, the New Scriptorium is the kind of online um, archives uh, of, of a lot of those publications from the Prayer Book Society. You're going to find a lot of really great public domain works uh, from yesteryear. Um, some of those great article, uh, great books, really, on the 39 articles, the prayer book, the history of the prayer book. Um, and, and by way of a little bit of a um, disclosure, I, I, I'm a member of the Prayer Book Society, or at least I have been in the past. I, I don't know if I need to renew my membership, but um, mm -hmm. yeah, I'm, I'm a big fan of the work that they do. Absolutely. Um, their magazine, The Anglican Way, formerly Mandate Magazine. Mm -hmm. um, has been a great resource and um, a lot of quality uh, sort of commentators on the Anglican uh, way from an orthodox and traditional perspective, both high and low church, by the way, you know, um, evangelical and Catholic voices there, which, um, you know, we, you and I are both pretty involved in the North American Anglican, um, I've always sort of thought that we were a kindred spirit, you know, if not just having maybe somewhat different uh, emphases. So definitely yeah, check, check them out. Um, definitely go check out the New Scriptorium and follow along with us. There's a ton of great stuff there, and it's free. So why wouldn't you? Nothing um, as good as free, right? <laughs> that's exactly right. I'm, that's my opinion. Now, we're going to uh, begin digging into knowing God through the liturgy. And I took a look at the preface. I think we can skip it. Um, but 
the this first uh, chapter, chapter one, the American experience, um, is I you know just reviewed it here while we were uh, getting ready earlier, and I think it's really great. I'm excited to dig in and see what riches we uncover from the late Mr. Toon. Um, and with that said, I guess I'll just snag the first uh, couple of paragraphs here. How's that sound, Father? Sounds great. Okay. Chapter one, the American experience. We arrived in this country in on December 31st of 1990, and having missed our connection in New York at JFK for Milwaukee, had to spend New Year's Eve in the city before leaving very early on January 1st, 1991, for Wisconsin via St. Louis. The culture shock of New York City on New Year's Eve has been as nothing compared with the culture shocks I've felt within the Episcopal Church, which is so different in many ways from the Church of England. First shock. The first shock was to discover that many bishops actually forbade the use of the Book of Common Prayer, that's the 1928, and did so even at funerals of people who had used the book for most, if not all, of their lives. My surprise and dismay were increased since it was from the mouths of bishops who I thought to be reasonably conservative that I heard the defense of this action. I had come from a situation where there were two books in use, the Book of Common Prayer, that's the 1662, and the Alternative Service Book that came out in 1980. In the land of the free and in the Episcopal Church, I found that freedom to be a traditional Anglican in public prayer, worship, and devotion was virtually forbidden. However, my spirits were raised as I gradually learned that thousands of laity and a few clergy felt as I did and quietly preserved the use of the Book of Common Prayer in parishes and homes. Well, Father, that's... Uh, does that surprise you that the Episcopal bishops as uh, early as 1990 or 91 were uh, forbidding the use of the 1928 Book of Common Prayer in some places? Um... Yes and no. Um, on, on the on the yes aspect, it's surprising that that would be a hard stand, um, be, be, just because I know so many uh, people that made that transition in, in the Episcopal Church. Um, you know, my, my grandmother, and my grandparents were um, Episcopalians from the time before my my father was born, and my grandmother was actually an Episcopal deacon um, until her retirement, oh, wow. and. Um, you know, she frankly, even even as recent as as five ten years ago, would get the seventy nine and the twenty eight mixed up because that transition just was not. It it was you know that's what she remembered was the twenty eight, even though she had been using all of her time in ministry the seventy nine. I'm sure, yeah. Um, so she would get mixed up what is the official text, uh, but on the other hand, I also have read enough about some of what happened with the. Uh, kind of behind the doors in the forming of the 79 that yeah there was <laughs> there was quite an agenda going on to be frank and um yeah and, and in order to make that revolution happen you you have to put down what came before well i i think it's fascinating personally and i was a little shocked uh, along with uh dr toon here um just because i guess from my perspective um, and I spent, you know, most of my Anglican time in the ACNA, in a, you know, albeit a traditional branch, the Reformed Episcopal Church. Um, and it seems as though, I, I can't really imagine any ACNA bishop saying, even though that you could say we have, there is our own form of worship wars in that context, Sure. Um, you can't. I can't really imagine an ACNA bishop saying you can't use the 1928 prayer book. Right. Or, I've certainly encountered ACNA bishops that are not friendly towards it and would strongly discourage its use. Um, okay. But I've That's never, interesting. I've never. Well, it, it's it's um, 
there is a theory among among some folks out there that the traditional language is an, antithetical to um, to mission. Right, and which so, I think is right. going to be something we'll be addressing head on here in this book. Abs- <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. But but yeah, I've certainly never never found any ACNA bishop that would outright forbid it. Yeah, and, and I suppose you know I'm tempted to think, well, there are places where uh, the 79 prayer book is forbidden. For instance, mm-hmm. in 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 most contexts of the the REC and other traditional. Um, Diocese and subjurisdictions. Yeah, Cana is forbidden as well. Right, but at the same time, it is one thing to forbid the latest innovation. It's quite another thing to say the old way is no longer even allowed. Right. Right. I mean, as Christians who have who place a certain value on tradition, that kind of thinking is oof, it. it sort of you know gets into my spine it's 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 uh it's creepy to be honest (laughs) (laughs) um but it gives you an idea of the spirit of this sort of transition that was being enforced at the time um that obviously in the 90s uh you know tune is coming in a couple decades into but right all that being said, uh, I'm sure he's got more things to say about this first shock. You want to take the next uh, couple paragraphs? Certainly. I have often asked myself why it is that clergy of all kinds seem so committed to the Book of Common Prayer 1979 and generally support bishops who forbid the use of Book of Common Prayer 1928 in parishes. Two possible reasons come to mind. First of all, this book is a genuinely American book, produced by Americans for Americans after painful and long trial use. In contrast, the Book of Common Prayer 1928 is only an American adaptation of of a basically British, both English and Scottish, book. Thus, there is a sense of pride in this all-American production, which was published before the new English Alternative Service Book, 1980, and which may still claim to be the best of the new type of modern Anglican books of service. In the second place, this book is comprehensive in that it provides for and reflects in its contents and arrangement a new pluralism. The provision, this provision fits well into a complex society such as America now is, satisfying a symbolic level, satisfying at a symbolic level, a felt religious need to provide for the individual parish, but to affirm some unity of the whole denomination. Thus, the book has both traditional and modern language liturgies, with a decided bias toward the modern. In fact, it surprised and pleased many Anglo-Catholic priests and parishes by incorporating as options most of their long-standing demands, for example, the Easter Vigil, provisions for the Reserved Sacrament and Auricular Confession. Further, it gives a vast scope for choice in what is used or not used in the services and, with respect to the Lord's Supper or Eucharist, it presents not one but six Eucharistic prayers from which to choose. Then also it seems to avoid that, con- that concentration on sin, atonement, and justification on account of which vocal critics had long judged the Book of, Prayer 19, Book of Common Prayer 1928 as being glued to older theology. I'll, I'll go ahead and finish out that because we have one more for the next section. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, faced with this breadth and these possibilities, how could any reasonable person oppose or not use such a, uh, such a book? Those who cry out for the Book of Common Prayer 1928 ought to realize, it has often been said, that right one of the new book provides for their needs. Thus let them leave the past and cease to bury their heads in the sand and enter into the modern experiment. Otherwise they will get left behind. The defense and commendation of the Common Prayer tradition as presented in the Book of Common Prayer 1928 will be offered throughout this book by a cumulative argument concerning the nature of Common Prayer, the priority of Holy Scripture, and the nature of Catholic dogma. There Good we go. Good stuff. Yeah. <laughs> I love, I love uh, his way of talking about these things, and um, it's always nice to... Uh, uh, dig back into a familiar writer's voice um, and uh, to hear old tune once again. What did you think, Father, of 
there's one one early phrase he said that that uh, kind of caught me that I thought was interesting. Um, first of all, he seems to suggest that the Book of Common Prayer 1928 is not a truly American book. Um, yeah, so that's that's very interesting. Um, and, and I think I think I can I can definitely see that. And, and to me, that's part of the strengths of it all is that it's not uniquely American. It's not based on our own kind of native from the ground up issues. However, mm-hmm. um, there is a lot in the 28th that reflects American sensibilities. Um, and and to be perfectly frank, as much as I love the 1928 Book of Common Prayer, these are some of my least favorite features of it. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, it does uh, reflect the tradition of the Book of Common Prayer as it has existed in the Protestant Episcopal Church, which the 1928 is not the first edition, obviously. Right. Um, and, and a tradition which, as uh, Peter Toon points out, does draw from both English and Scottish sources. Um, so I guess in the sense that the 1928 is a bridge that unites us with the English and Scottish books of common prayer, I guess I can agree with what he's saying. Yeah. Um, and, and so, <laughs> which also suggests that when he calls the 1979 book of common prayer a, what does he, he say, uh, produced by Americans for Americans. Um, <laughs> it, it doesn't seem like a compliment to be honest. No. And you know, and I, and I would, I would have to agree. I mean, part of, part of the problem with the, um, what, what is in the 1979, you know, is, is summarizing in what he said at the end, you know, um, let them leave the past and cease to bury their heads in the sand and enter into the modern experiment. Otherwise, they will be left behind. Mm-hmm. So quintessentially American in our culture. And um, like the the Episcopalian sort of mantra, really. It, right. being, being such a deeply traditional church, um, its current trajectory has been just a repeat, a repetition of leave the past behind, leave the past behind. God is doing a new thing. If you're not, if you're not about the future, then you can't be with us because obviously (laughs) the past includes a lot of Orthodox biblical teaching that they're going out of their way to reject. Um, I've heard it said, and I think this is a good, this reflects the, some of the core mentality issues between here and, and, and and Britain, all of, all of the British Isles. Um, over here in America, a hundred years is a long time. Over mm-hmm. in the British Isles, a hundred miles is very far. Ah, yes, that's interesting, huh? Yes. Um, well, and th- and that kind of gets into the American reality of um, what he calls. Well, he says that um, the new book is comprehensive. And it provides for and reflects uh, a new pluralism. Uh, and of course, uh, as big a country as America is, you're, go- you're not going to be able to avoid a certain degree of pluralism, at least kind of when it comes to local cultures that are being um, sort of strung together and united under one large national identity. Right. Um, so the national identity is going to be sort of necessarily pluralistic to some extent, which obviously um, in our founding, uh, we were probably a pretty darn close representation of what was going on in England with some a few sort of uh, political differences. Um, but that has certainly changed over time. And, uh, and, you know, one thing that I, I, that struck me about that was he says this fits well into a complex society such as America now is, mm-hmm. um, which is another way of saying that 
things are modernity has made things really complicated and this is a prayer book that um, sort of adopts that as a stance rather than seeing that as something that maybe is in need of some challenge is that yeah. a fair reading in some way I think so and I would contrast this with I know this is going a bit of field of, of this particular book but um, you know uh, I just returned from the ACNA assembly where we got the physical copy of the new ACNA text and um, I, I went to all the breakout sections uh, breakout sessions for the new liturgy because you know that's that's mm. the hat I wear and um, there was you have that's... a lot of cool hats by the way oh <laughs> well there also got yeah I did get a physically a new hat I I, I finally got a um, a uh, <laughs> a, a Canterbury cap which has become my yes. favorite hat of all it is the silliest hat I have but it's my favorite love it uh, <laughs> and that I got at assembly too but um, yeah the uh, the, the ethos in in the in the 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 ACNA's new prayer book is similar. You know, it's this recognition that there is a wide range of churchmanship, and so there needs to be comprehensiveness. There needs to be a certain flexibility in the rubrics. But the big difference is the ACNA after after you know dealing with the seventy nine for forty years, the ACNA has realized that the new text needs to be an evolution, not a revolution. Well, and, and so, yeah, and the, that's the what, big what he says about that. going from one Eucharistic prayer to six. Yeah. It's like good gravy. Um, I yeah. mean, and I'm not that familiar with the 79 prayer book, to be honest with you. I, I've sort of fingered through it and, you know, um, people will mention things. And I'll have to go look them up, but, um, it is, I've never belonged to a parish where that was the liturgy being used and that's surprising yeah i was i was baptized in um, the episcopal church as a baby and we um we kind of flip-flop between as when i was a child between episcopalian churches and roman catholic churches depending on where we were stationed at the time um hmm. my mom was roman catholic my dad was episcopalian and um so i i you know it, as much as a you know pre-confirmation age kid could be I was pretty familiar with the 79 text and the 79 was part of what brought me back to my roots when I when I returned to um, you know traditional Christianity it was through through rediscovering the prayer book of my childhood sure but when I was exposed through some continuing churches um, and and people like Peter Toon's writings um, to the traditional texts, the older texts, what what I discovered was that it, for all of its comprehensiveness, there was a maybe necessary um, flattening of the theology in the book. Mm -hmm. And so it was it was the more robust theology of the 1662 and 1928 that um really led my formation as an Anglican adult. Um, you know, and even though I had, I had really been brought back through the 79. That's, that's interesting. Um, and I think yeah, it does speak to sort of, uh, as we pursue this book and get further into it, I'm sure this is going to come up, but there's something about holding things in common that can look a lot of like a lot of different scenarios and this is important for common prayer right, right. so um, if you're in agreement about something very specific that's a high level of agreement but if you're in agreement about something that's sort of the most just a completely watered down statement like well who wouldn't agree that air is good for breathing, you know, or so, right? I mean, it's, yes, you're agreed. Yes, you would hold that in common, but it's almost as in so insignificant as to be not worth mentioning. Right. Um, and I think that this gets directly into sort of what it means to be Anglican, what it means to be Christian, 
quite frankly, um, the church has always drawn lines and said, no, if you go past this line, you're a Montanist, right? Or, you know, or whatever it happens to be, a Pelagian or whatever it is. Um, and here's Orthodoxy. And it's, it's this center, this central deposit that we're defending. Um, and as Anglicans, we, uh, have drawn those lines in certain places and common prayer was always supposed to be a unifying agreement in the same way that the church has used the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed. Um, and indeed, it belongs in our common prayer. Um, so if your common prayer is so watered down to adapt just about any idea under the sun, it just doesn't mean it very much anymore. Right, yeah, and that, and that that's that's exactly the problem with so much of the mo- of modern liturgy period, and, and I guess the question is, you know, is is it realistic to? I mean, is, is this a Pandora's box that's just been opened in the Anglican world, mm. or is there some way of returning to that older, more robust uh, form of common prayer? Um, which, which, frankly, if we know our Anglican history, was was often ignored. <laughs> yeah, because well, the, because of that diversity, <laughs> right? Well, and I think it's it's interesting and good to look at you know sort of the history of you could say what I just call disobedience to the common prayer of the church that people belong to, um, and, but also you know the maybe what to me is even more interesting is the ways in which people were able to actually uh, endear themselves to the the same common prayer even though they may have had um very different sort of theological persuasions but yeah um but let's stick with the the book here for a bit longer we've got three big <laughs> shocks that uh Peter Toon wants to tell us about, and um, the second shock here is only two paragraphs, so I'll read them both. Ah, second shock. The second shock came upon me gradually, and it began at the General Convention of the Episcopal Church at Phoenix in July in 1991. Uh, Dear listeners, if you were present and you have a story to tell, please... uh, Uh, Find us on Twitter or uh, Facebook or where else and uh, let us know. It was as a result of the realization that there is an equating of the zeitgeist or spirit of the age with the Holy Spirit by much of the leadership of the church. The nature of the Holy Spirit as the spirit of Christ is presented in scripture for our study and meditation in such places as John 14 through 16 and Romans 8. He is the spirit of holiness and wholeness, of regeneration and renewal, of goodness and faithfulness, and he leads us in the way of Christ. What he guides disciples of Jesus to be and to do stands in contrast and opposition to the secular spirit of the world, the raw desires of the flesh and the temptations of the devil. The Holy Spirit is on no account to be confused with the spirit of the age or the modern spirit. However, this contemporary spirit is defined. I have been profoundly disturbed to hear of such things as the right of human beings to name God as they choose and the practice of homosexuality and lesbianism described as examples of the way the Holy Spirit is showing us new values and truths today. Is this not coming near to that sin our Lord said was not forgivable? Sin against the Holy Spirit? See Matthew 12.31, Mark 3.29, Luke 12.10. As I shall explain in the next two chapters, this confusion of the person of the Holy Spirit with the modern, secular spirit is in part possible because of the various doctrines of God being taught in the church. These are of such a nature that they give emphasis to the imminence and omnipresence of God as spirit and little, if any, emphasis to the utter transcendence of God apart from and above the created order. If God is reduced to the cosmos, 
then it is only a short step to identifying cultural and historical movement as the expression of God as spirit. <laughs> Lots to unpack there, Father. What do you think? Yeah, I mean the uh, the the one of the one of the great benefits of um, the formularies, the the truths of the Reformation, the Church Fathers, is this understanding of the objective nature of 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 God's Word and of the sacraments. And the idea that these are the primary ways that the Spirit of God speaks. What happens when you downplay word and sacrament is you get um, either kind of on the liberal side, um, you know, this this equating of the zeitgeist with the Holy Spirit, or let's 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 be let's be honest on the more evangelical side, the equating of the movement of the Spirit with all sorts of odd subjective um you know quasi mystical things that that you see mm -hmm. in some of the extreme areas of the charismatic movement yeah it's a real problem of authority isn't it it is yeah um i mean that that reminds me of what you said uh about the scriptures which you know there's the the old latin phrase norma normans non normata which means um it is the norm of norms which cannot be normed, um, and Protestants, you know, take that and and uh, we sort of find agree with the uh, patristic sense of sola scriptura, which is to say that this is the source, this is the authority. It impresses God's mind and will onto us as the church, and which is something that we uh, may deviate from to our peril. And if you don't have a sort of solid view of Scripture, um, which, you know, we could go into the many ways in which uh, sort of 19th and 20th century severely misguided and, quite frankly, uh, intellectually unsound uh, sort of ways in which uh, Scripture was denigrated in the mainline churches... Um, and continues to be so, quite frankly, um, you really lose your, your moorings. Um, suddenly, you know, the Holy Spirit isn't found there in that book. Um, maybe he, he might be in there a little bit, you know, but no more than he is in uh, either your favorite political or persuasive speaker or, quite frankly, uh, as you said, sort of a charismatic uh, leader or, you know, I mean... It, when you lose uh, God's gift to the church through his word as an authoritative um, document that is a guide for life, boy, it really swings that door wide open. And even a church as, you know, sort of founded on a traditional orientation towards scripture uh, as the Episcopal church um, is subject to wow the wildest kind of swings yeah it ab absolutely is and um you know and this and this is not to not to draw like a cessationist line in the sand but but it is to to necessarily <laughs> i mean I, I, I there's a lot of cessationists i respect and and um, mm -hmm. I, I you know but uh but that is to say that the only place we know for sure that the Holy Spirit is speaking is, is, is in the word of God. Right. Um, I mean, and everything else. So, so anything else that, well, maybe the Holy Spirit is leading us to do this. Okay. You know, how does that line up with the Holy scriptures? Uh, because you can, you can very easily tell <laughs> yeah. when it's, you know, when it contradicts the scriptures, that's a, that's a pretty solid, solid statement there. Right. Yeah, it, I and one of the arguments that you often hear people make is, well, um, if the Holy Spirit is saying something outside of Scripture, let's compare it to Scripture. And if you can find that in Scripture as well, then, first of all, maybe um, we didn't necessarily need the new word. <laughs> 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 you know? um, uh, it, and, uh, you know, I, I don't know if I fully get on board with that. I think there's a sense in which the church has this, uh, 
you know, and, and everybody kind of agrees on this part, is that there's a sort of a prophetic um, role to right. bring the truths of Scripture to the world in the present moment. But again, that's, uh, that's pretty unidirectional, right? That is from, from the Godhead, spoken through the authoritative word, um, and then dis, you know, dissipated out through the church into the culture. You know, it's, it's, we're sowing goodness into the culture, not um, holding the culture and considering it um, completely on its own merits and saying, well, maybe we ought to rethink some things. So anyways, I, I just love this, this short little second shock he, he mentions. I think he really puts his finger on sort of the issue that uh, is driving so much of what I guess you could call just theological liberalism. Yep, absolutely. Well, shall we move on to the third shock? Sounds good. Go right ahead there. Third shock. The third shock, which also came upon me slowly rather than suddenly, was to discover just how deeply the liberal or modernist agenda has penetrated the process of liturgical revision since the 1970s. In fact... The whole liturgical movement, which began with good intentions, seems to have gone off course and to have become the vanguard for the revision of the faith through the revision of the services we use. And it is to be seen in the way in which the Book of Common Prayer 1979 and the Canadian Book of Alternative Services 1985 are being used, for example, the rubric allowing the omission of the confession of sins being taken as a rule always to omit the confession of sins or to omit the confession for 50 days following Easter, but also in the plans for further and more radical revised services to which Prayer Book Studies 30 with its inclusive language liturgies points. I recall how concerned C.S. Lewis was about the moves in England to update the liturgy and wrote, I would ask the clergy to believe that we, laymen, are more interested in orthodoxy and less interested in liturgiology as such than they can easily imagine. What we laymen fear is that the deepest doctrinal issues should be tacitly and implicitly settled by what seem to be merely changes in liturgy. A man who is wondering whether the fare set before him is food or poison is not reassured by being told that the course is now restored to its traditional place in the menu or that the tureen <laughs> is of the sarum, that is, old Sol Salisbury pattern. We laymen are ignorant and timid. Our lives are ever in our hands. The avenger of blood is on our heels, and of each of us his soul may be this night be required. Can you blame us if the reduction of grave doctrinal issues to merely liturgical issues fills us with something like terror? And that's from God in the Doc in 1970, page 332. Wow. <laughs> that's that Lewis quote, uh, a man who is wondering where the, the fair set before him is food or poison is not reassured by being told that the course is now restored to its traditional place in the menu. That is... <laughs> That's a keeper right there. Everybody highlight and copy and paste. Um, wow, yeah. What a, what a terrific writer, um, both of these guys. But man, Lewis, always, always good with uh, putting ideas into words. Hmm. And, and for a layman, I, I must say that his, um, some of the ways he's, he's put some of these liturgical issues in various of his, his essays and books... Um, have been big influences on me as a relatively young man kind of wrestling with some of the uh, more modern controversies that, you know, when you're, when you're growing up in the 1980s and 90s, you don't even realize they're controversies. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, it, it, and it, it gets back to this issue of authority again, doesn't it? It's, there's yep. the sense in which here's the layman, and he's saying... We want orthodoxy, and he's, you know, presumably speaking to the authority figures of his age, and he's trying to appeal to a past authority in a way to say, look, we know that the food we were offered in the past was good. 
it doesn't help me to know that you're some kind of experts now and that you've got some good reason for doing it. That doesn't tell me that the next meal is going to be safe like it was before. And there's a real pastoral and pragmatic sort of, this is as transcendent and high as, as some of these conversations can be about liturgy and what happens um, in the sacraments and whatnot and how they form us spiritually, um, we need to keep in mind that there's this sort of tactile, tangible, pragmatic element to all of this. And, yeah, it's cold comfort to know that, well, we... We're experts and we had good reasons for making the changes. When you know, well, I, I liked the omelets before and I don't know what this is. <laughs> you know? And I'm reminded of how, um, you know, the, 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 the Book of Common Prayer um, and, and, and whatever hymnal was usually authorized were kind of the two texts that the layman would have other than their Bible. Mm -hmm. um, you know, this was, and it was, it was a, it was kind of an honor to to receive your your hymnal or your prayer book at your confirmation. Um, yeah. You know, we, we we read about in in gosh, even in Jane Austen novels, you know, the the uh, the, the the father um, or the mother leading the household in their family prayers and stuff like that. Um, you know, it was it was par part of what we have in the prayer book tradition is bringing the liturgy to the people um, you know you know bringing the even as it's often been said some of the best aspects of monasticism to the to the everyday person mm -hmm. but what happens when you're in a situation like oh say common worship where now you no longer have a single volume but you've got three volumes that you have to assemble a liturgy from or you know when it mentioned the six the six eucharistic rites in the 79 but but even even if when you're dealing with just daily prayer there's multiple ways of doing it it becomes kind of a choose your own adventure liturgy right and um you know the the average layman is just not going to learn it you know you you have taken common prayer from the common people Absolutely. And I think people need to, who have never really had that experience, and, and arguably um, no American maybe has, and few modern Englishmen maybe. Um, but I think it's important for us to really wrap our minds around what common prayer meant for centuries in England and the British Isles. And what it meant for Episcopalians, sort of, uh, who received that tradition with thanks and thankfulness and gratitude, rather than um, as something that you know, well, it's okay, but uh, you know, it, it needs a little, little uh, help here and there. And it, this, this tradition, as you said, it, it wasn't just a place. It wasn't just what we did on Sundays. And that's something that, um, you know, I, hang, I spend a lot of time with uh, conservative Lutherans and conservative Catholics. And these are both liturgical traditions, but um, they do not have the same kind of shared uh, liturgical voice or prayer life that traditional Anglicans that I know have. You know, I, I, I can begin... The general confession from morning prayer and one of my traditional Anglican friends could finish it you know just because something like that that's been sort of uh, scored into the human spirit over re re repeated use um, doesn't just go away and to have one option versus a plurality which you know I suppose is supposed to give you freedom but um, it's, it's the freedom of a, way, of a menu that's got way too many options, right? Where yep. very often, not only are you going to find that some of those options are not very good, but you'll also find yourself sort of paralyzed by the, 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 the new burden of having to choose and not being able to sort of receive with gratitude. 
It's like turning on Netflix and not knowing what you want to watch. Oh my goodness! Yeah, I you, no, you you you're the same age as me, I think, and you probably remember sort of endlessly perusing Blockbuster. Oh yeah, you know? oh yeah. <laughs> that that same exercise now just takes place on the couch. Am I right? It, or am I right? <laughs> it's so true. <laughs> and at least, like while you were in public, you felt like this pressure, like oh, they're they're staring at me, or you know, <laughs> like I better <laughs> I better eventually make a decision. But I I've had moments where I've, I I sat down to watch a show, and instead I just enjoyed the menu. For an allotted amount of time, but yeah, all of that is is to say is um, it, the the common prayer tradition is about sinking your teeth into something real, not uh, not knowing where to start. Um, well, with that being said, should I uh, finish off this section here, the next couple of paragraphs? Yeah, let's do that. All right. On the next page, Professor Lewis has a further word on the relation of liturgy and belief. Quote, I submit that the relation is healthy when liturgy expresses the belief of the church, morbid when liturgy creates in the people, by suggestion, beliefs which the church has not publicly professed, taught, and believed. End quote. As we go on our journey in this book, especially chapter 10, we shall notice some of these grave doctrinal issues being covered up through claims that the new Lex Orandi is the new Lex Credendi, the new law of prayer in the new law is the new law of faith for which see chapter 10. I also recall the words of the late W.H. Auden, who took part in some of the early work on revising the Psalter in the 1960s. He saw a wonderful tradition of prayer, la prayer language slipping away in the euphoria of revision and wrote in his commonplace book. The Episcopal Church seems to have gone stark, raving, mad. And why? The Roman Catholics, after Vatican II, have had to start from scratch, and as any of them with a feeling for language will admit, they have made a cacophonous horror of the Mass. Whereas, we had the extraordinary good fortune in that our prayer book was composed at exactly the right historical moment. The English language had already become more or less what it is today. But the ecclesiastics of the 16th century still possessed a feeling for the ritual and ceremonious, which today we have almost certainly lost. That's from A Common World, 1979, page 85. My concern is primarily with the doctrine and spirituality, but I fully recognize that these must be expressed in excellent English. This this uh, that that Auden expressed here is has been has has very much been a soapbox for me um, <laughs> through most of my through most of my ministry really um, I I very much feel that we as as modern Anglicans or rather really frankly it's more of our our forefathers in the previous generation the baby boomer generation sold our heritage for a pot of beans I mean we we have yeah. totally pulled a liturgical Esau mm. and. Um, and, and yeah, and, he, and I think if I remember, Auden actually, even though he never ceased being Episcop an Episcopalian, in the end of his life, he was worshiping with the Eastern Orthodox. Wow, I, I did not know that. Um, yeah, hmm. well, our our friends over at Anglican Audio uh, recently did an episode on Auden. Um, Good so, episode, yeah. Yeah, so definitely, listener, if you want to sort of learn more about this figure and his kind of thoughts during that time, uh, go check that out. Yeah, that's the uh, uh, Faith and Honor podcast from Anglican Audio with uh, Bart Gingrich and, oh gosh, I forget who the other fellow is. Because I don't know right. him <laughs> on Facebook yeah. the way I know Bart. <laughs> right. It's hard not to know Bart on Facebook if you're a, if you're a traditional Anglican. But um, yes, good stuff there, definitely. 
Um, I love this this claim he makes, which I think uh, you have to, whether you agree with it or not, you have to kind of be open to the possibility that our prayer book was composed at exactly the right historical moment and everything that that entails. I mean, isn't it possible that Providence just worked that way? And I mean, and uh, if it's not like, well, the perfect exact moment, it was good enough for, I mean, golly, four centuries, yeah. right? <laughs> I mean, I mean, sometimes I, I think people have to realize like how many things societally had changed and yet the liturgy remained the same. And not the, as though the liturgy was falling behind, but it was always relevant. Right. You know, with, the same without complaint, more or less, from those who actually cared to go to church. Um, yeah, just, just like with the King James Bible and with Shakespeare, um, mm-hmm. you know, the, these had remained the standards up until the middle 20th century for, for just the way we, we did, you know, English language, you know, worship and kind of the top standard for, for, for literature and all that sort of thing. Um, I mean, you, you have, I, I remember an episode of the original Star Trek where they're, they're doing Shakespeare. You know, they're, you know, and, well, uh, even, even, even into the movies in the nineties, they were, you know, and, and, and they're, they're, they weren't, quote, they weren't doing West Side Story. You know, they're, they're doing Romeo right. and Juliet. Yeah. And, and of course, sometimes that, that can be used as an argument against traditional liturgy. Like, well, you wouldn't, it's like, it's like making children, forcing them to memorize Macbeth to go to church. You know, it's as though it's this sort of barrier um, but it, it really isn't, though. It's, it's almost—it's yeah. like taking snippets of Shakespeare and saying, "Just memorize these." Oh, and we're going to all be saying them over and over and over again, and the meaning of them will be coming out in the preaching and in the catechesis. And I mean, it, if anything, a huge part of uh, of church life is explaining what we're doing when we do it. You know, it, I, I just find this idea that a few foreign words that are not commonly used in day-to-day life is a barrier to newcomers or or it's it's just you know some people just aren't smart enough for for that kind of English you know I, I think it's it's complete baloney I'm sorry but <laughs> and part of the frankly part part of the duty of of the priest is to educate his flock on on some of these issues of course and every liturgy needs to be taught, right? Quite frankly, it's everything's going to have to be explained at some point. You either will learn it or you won't, and you'll learn the words and you'll learn what they mean. I'm sorry, but I don't know how to make it more plain that this is just not a barrier. Um, I mean, is it a barrier in the sense that if you're not a Christian and you come to church for the first time, you're going to encounter some new weird things? Well, yeah, <laughs> right? but that, yeah, and, and language doesn't matter in that. I mean, unbelievers expect going to church to be weird, right? Yeah, I, I really think this is like the experience of people who have maybe visited other churches and found it uncomfortable, like like cradle Christians who are like, "Well, that was different from what I'm used to, and therefore it is a barrier." and unkind (laughs) or you know these are these are so in-house conversations that are always sort of waged on the behest of that poor um outsider that's being kept from christ but it really i i just find that complaint is um off base and, and and it just doesn't make any sense my experience of um speaking with you know i have plenty of non-christian friends is that they quite frankly, if they were ever to go to church, they'd want to go somewhere where it's pretty and not um, some sort of lame rehash of what they were watching on TV last night. So, you know, it, it, th- those who have any interest or you know would probably want something that in their mind is sort of like the movie Episcopal Catholic 
you know, church scene or whatever, you know, <laughs> where it's like Daredevil's guy walks into a dark church and there's a sagely priest there who he can talk to or whatever, <laughs> you know. Um, yeah. Yeah, I was, I, I have a, um, a Jewish neighbor and uh, I was, I just happened to be, um, from, from time to time I will, I will wear my cassock, you know, from home to church or even walking and um, sure. the other day she stopped me and said, you know, I just love it when you're do- wearing all that traditional stuff. <laughs> hmm, and, you know, she's, cool. you know, and, and she's, yeah, she's, she's has zero interest in the gospel. Um, but, you know, in, in zero, zero interest in Christianity. But to her, that's what a Christian minister should look like. Yeah. Wow. And, and, and take that example and um, compare it with this message that I feel like we've been getting from within the church by lifelong Christians for so many years, which is, we have to change, we have to change, the world won't accept us as we are, we have to become like the world. But you meet the world and they're like, no, that that's creepy when you do that, like, we'd rather we knew who you were and what you're doing. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah, show, show, we mean, need to show our cards, not, not pretend. Yeah. Yeah. And it's expected, it's expected. You know, and I think of my as a, as a young person, you know, as a as a early teenager, late junior high age, some of my um, hostility to things like hymnals and and traditional worship, and I and I realize now that that that's frankly just a mark. That was a mark of immaturity on my part. Hmm. Um, that was a mark of 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 my childishness. Um, that that I didn't realize what was good. You know, it was mm. the spiritual equivalent of wanting to have candy for breakfast. Sure. Yeah. Well, and every parent and I'm, and you know, I speaking as a teacher and you as a priest, I'm sure has had that experience of, um, trying to get a reluctant person to eat their vegetables, you know, um, I mean, I, I think of, you know, some of my students when we were slogging through uh, Plato's Republic last year. <laughs> and, you know, um, I, up until I started teaching at a classical school, I had never actually witnessed a uh, 16-year-old fall asleep in real time. Like, you know, the eyes lids were going down and then <laughs> the head was nodding and then there was drool on, a, on the school book. But, you know, it, it happens. But, you know, it, part of my reassurance to myself here is like, look, you know, yes, I do have a sort of task to make this material engaging. That's part of my job as a teacher. But I shouldn't walk into the classroom and just expect that these subjects, these students are emotionally or mentally mature or spiritually mature enough to just appreciate everything I'm doing and everything we're going to read. No, it's like the task of this material is to be forming and shaping them, which could be painful, right? right. But it's, right. you know, they're, they're there to learn. They're not just learning information. They're learning how to love Right, their my their hearts are being formed. Like they're learning how to like what's better than what's bad. Right, right, right. Not just what to like, but how to identify the good in a in a pluralistic society. Right, and that's one of the best things that the common prayer tradition does is it just tunes the heartstrings, you know. And to be in tune with so many other heartstrings, I mean, it, I just find. Um, people of the prayer book are just, they can, they can really relate in this weird level. You know, you, it's like you, you walk into a room full of traditional Anglicans and, and it's just, you feel something, you know, <laughs> there's something in the air. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I just think that's, it's hard to describe that, but there, that what you mentioned about like lacking the maturity at that time, I think that's a hard word for a lot of people to hear and, Look, I don't ever want to hear 
well, you're just not mature enough to appreciate what's good for you right now. <laughs> like, like the my uh, as a miserable offender, I am offended to think that I'm so miserable in that way, you know. Uh, but I am, and we all are, and we all need a sort of a standard to straighten us out and to yeah. teach us to love what we ought to love, you yeah. know. Um, and if we can't recognize that. Kind, that 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 such a thing could even exist, then we've got bigger problems than which liturgy we're using. Yep, abs- absolutely, absolutely. Well, on that note, I think uh, maybe. What do you say we leave the rest of this chapter for another session? And uh, yeah, I think may- that'll be a good idea. Maybe we'll be able to get Andrew on board here, and uh, and he can. Uh, spill the beans on his own his own thoughts on these things um also speaking of i would love to hear a full report from you guys as to what what you experienced at uh the provincial assembly is there any anything uh that you want to sort of uh communicate from to the audience uh from your experience there uh sure i mean i i mostly what i did um, was was focused on those breakout sessions with the prayer book. Um, I, I caught a couple of the plenaries, but um, not not everything. And, and part part of that is you know you know as a as, as being in Cana, I was more there as an observer than anything else. Um, mm-hmm. So I you know full participation wasn't wasn't necessarily um, on, on the on the. Um, uh, on the in the cards for me, but um, I, I can say, despite everything that we we've, we've just said here about the traditional older books of compare, um, <laughs> I am a lot less grumpy about the ACNA prayer book than I was, um, say, two months ago. Okay. So, um, I mean, there, there's we're not we're not going to be switching from the twenty eight at our parish, and for all the reasons that we're going to be reading about in Doctor Toon's book here. But right. um, but I do think that that they they set out to make an, an evolution, um, not a revolution, and I do think they accomplished that. And so yeah, I'll be writing up a more detailed report um, on that um, in the coming days. Excellent. Well, you heard it here first, folks. Look forward to uh, that report from Father Isaac Rayberg. And if you follow us on Facebook, Miserable Offenders on Facebook, you can actually go and find uh, Deacon Andrew and Father Isaac met up at the assembly, and they recorded a pretty fun uh, video while they were there. So go check that out for sure. Um, Any final words, Father, before we uh, wrap this one up? Um, not, not really. I mean, I'm, I'm just really looking forward to, uh, to unpacking this and getting into, uh, into Dr. Toon's, um, um, reasoning here. It's, it's, it's going to be great. I am too. It's really exciting. And, uh, yeah, he's a great writer and it's a topic I love to talk about. So looking forward to doing more of that with you. Take care, father. Bye-bye. Bye. It was the spirit of our forefathers that built that grand building. I believe that that spirit is with us still and will help us to, to rebuild it one day when we've served and suffered a while, a little longer. Build it again to the, to the glory of, of Jesus Christ. Miserable Offenders is a production of the North American Anglican. Learn more at N-O-R-T-H-A-M Anglican.com.